Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. And as they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you're one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, But who do you say I am? And Peter replied, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. And as he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. And then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That passage from the Gospel of Mark was in uh, my one-year Bible for today, February 26th. Didn't even realize that until I read it this morning as I've been studying it for a while. As we uh, continue our journey through the, all nine sections of the Scripture, and today we're on our second Gospel. We did a, a passage from Matthew last week, and today Mark, next week it'll be Luke, and then John. Let's continue to encourage everyone to make the year of 2000. Um, and 12 a year when you devote yourself to the reading of God's Word more than ever and go all the way through it. The setting of the passage that we read today is something that we need to take note of. Just to figure out what the setting was, all you need to really do is just look at what comes before, what's taken place, what's going on. In, in Mark uh, chapter 8, you, you hear the the, the reciting of, of Jesus reminding the disciples of, of some very important things that have taken place, some miraculous things that have happened. He, he speaks to them as they travel in a, in a boat, and they're wondering about not having enough to eat. And he says, don't you guys just remember? I mean, you were just with me. Not too long ago, we had two fish and five loaves of bread, and we fed 5,000 plus people. And they're like, oh yeah. And he said, and do you remember after that, we had another situation where we had just a few loaves of bread and we managed to feed 4,000 people? Oh yeah, we remember that too. And just after he reminds them of that, they encounter a man who's blind on, on, on the way and Jesus touches him and heals him and gives him sight. And that's just a couple of incredible things that have happened in the first few chapters of Mark. 
And then he looks at them and says to them, Now who do people say I am? People. In my years of ministry, I, I, wish, I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody has come to me and said, Pastor, people are saying And I usually want to say, okay, so you and your sister are saying, now tell me, tell me what it is you want to say to me. If you're going to say people are saying, tell me who. Jesus said, who do people say? And they said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist. Come back to life, others say you're one of the other great prophets you know maybe Elisha or Isaiah or, or one of the others Jesus says all right but now let's forget the people and he says who do you say I am and Peter in boldly and strongly steps up and and is right and says you are the Messiah and it was, it was a great moment. Mark is kind of the gospel that, the writer that just gives us the straight facts and then moves on. But the same account of the same story in Matthew, uh, Matthew reminds us there that when, when Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus stopped and looked at, at Peter and said, you are blessed, Simon Peter. Simon, son of John, because you didn't learn this by any, any human teaching. My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And he said, upon this confession of faith that you've made today, Peter, uh, that is a rock upon which I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. I mean, that was a great moment, a great confession. Peter speaking for his brothers and saying, you're more than a prophet. You're more than a teacher. You're more than just some new celebrity. Jesus, you are the one. You're the Messiah. Great confession of belief. And we need to know as believers here today, if we call ourselves Christian, our confession of Christ is a must. I mean, you, you all need, we all need to come to that place where we would verbally confess with everything that we have that Jesus Christ is Lord and Messiah. He's the Savior of the world, the Son of God, who lived, died, rose again, and promises to return. So confess that. If we're going to take on His name, if you're going to call yourself a Christian or a follower of Christ, you need to know and you need to believe and you need to confess who he is, who he said he was. That's a really, really, really important thing. What we say we believe is important. Just last Sunday, we had 30 new members who, who covenanted with us to become members of Houston First Church in the Nazarene. It's a wonderful thing. And in doing so, those people have all studied statements of belief that we hold in the Church of the Nazarene. We have 16 articles of faith or statements of belief, which we say, according to Scripture, we affirm these things. We confess these things to be true, that we believe them and we, we hold on to them. 
That's just for the church in the Nazarene, those 16 statements of faith. There, there are other confessions of faith that Christians around the world make. And today around the world, millions of people have confessed their faith and will do so. And it's good for us to join them today. Uh, we should have slides coming up right now that I would love for you to just confess with me and say the Apostles' Creed this morning. If you're a follower of Christ and want to join me in doing that, will you read with me? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and in earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day He rose again from the dead, and He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. We sang it earlier as we began the service. And just now we've recited and confessed our creed, and I hope that as you verbally speak that or read that, that, that you embrace it. and You believe that what was on the screen before you and those, those words are true. That's a confession of faith. But we move on from there. We move on. We have to make a step from just confessing Christ to begin to line up our lives with His plans and His purposes. In this passage, in Mark 8, verse 31, just after the, the great confession that, that Peter made, just after saying, yes, you're the Messiah, Jesus, for the first time in Mark's Gospel, if you read through Mark's Gospel, you'll see that this is the first time when Jesus really begins to spell out what's ahead for him. It says there in verse 31, He began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer and many terrible things and be rejected. And, and He would be killed and began to tell them of all of those things that were ahead. And when Peter hears this, this is the same guy who said, you're the Messiah. He calls Jesus aside and said, hey, Jesus, calm down. Take, take, take it easy. I'm, I'm, what's all this suffering, rejection, killing? Come on. And Jesus steps back from that reprimand or rebuke of Peter and in verse verse 32 we see Jesus reprimand rebuke of Peter and the others he steps back and then says to them get away from me Satan does that mean Peter was Satan embodied at that moment no but it means that what he was speaking was a temptation to Jesus to back away from God's plans and purposes for him And he said, listen, you're not seeing things from God's point of view. You're just on the human level right here. You need to see it more clearly. 
And then Jesus does something interesting. If you, you can skip right over it, but in verse 34, instead of just the disciples, just the 12 closest to him, it says he called the crowd in. He said, hey, everybody, everybody come in here close. Now maybe they were close enough in distance that they'd heard some of the exchange of what had gone on between him and Peter and the disciples. But, but he said, hey, everybody, everybody up close, listen to me. I don't want there to be any mistake about this. If you're going to line up your life with my plans and purposes, if you're going to move beyond just calling me the Messiah, you need to understand real clear, this comes with a cost. There's a cost to this. If you're going to move from just making a confessional statement to actually lining up your life with what you've confessed, it comes with a cost. Verse 34, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. He said, Hey, the cost is high. Now, people in that part of the world, in, in that day and age, in which this was written, in which Jesus spoke those words, the folks in that part of the world were familiar with crosses and crucifixion. We're familiar with crosses based on jewelry and paintings and slides and those, those kinds of things and an occasional replica that's set up somewhere. But they were familiar with the real crosses and purposes for them. Crucifixion in the Roman world was a common punishment. They used it often, swift and severe. And it was a, a very common practice when that was done that the person who was going to be crucified would carry their cross, shoulder their cross, and carry it through the streets of the city. So the folks that Jesus was talking to, most if not all of them had seen this in action. They had seen some man stumbling through the streets under the weight of a cross and when they saw that man carrying his cross, they may not have known his crime, what he'd done, what his history was, his name, but they knew this, he wasn't coming back. Pastor Lee Eklov um, from the Chicago area uh, tells a story about when he was a kid in the in the, the 50s the game company Parker Brothers came out with a with a game for I guess Christian families uh, this that's the same company you know, that that is known best for Monopoly and, and the, the board game that they came out with it was called going to Jerusalem and he said, but you're, you know, the little piece that you moved around the board, it wasn't a little top hat or a race car or a thimble or, you know, one of those things. It, it was, it was a, a little character, character of a disciple, like a little bearded, robed person. And in going to Jerusalem, you were a disciple and represented by this little plastic man. And in order to move across the board, you looked up answers to questions in a little New Testament that was in there with the game and he said I remember playing that game as a kid and you always started in Bethlehem and you made stops at the Mount of Olives 
and Bethesda and Capernaum and the, the, the stormy sea and we went by Nazareth and the village of Bethany. And if you rolled the dice well, you went all the way to the triumphal entry, you know, Palm Sunday, you know, into Jerusalem. And that was the end of the game. You never went to the crucifixion or the resurrection. And along the way, you never encountered any demons. You never encountered any angry Pharisees. Everything was just a nice story, safe story. A game perfectly suited, he said, for like a Sunday afternoon Christian family after dinner activity. He said it never really occurred to me when I was young and playing that game, leaning over that card table, rolling the dice, that traveling with Jesus wasn't meant for little plastic disciples who looked up verses in their little black Bible to see whether or not they were going to go to the parade. Jesus said, if you're going to walk with me, take up your cross and follow me. The, the sports world, big focus for the next couple of months, uh, a lot of it is on the, the NFL draft. And when I picked up little uh, Gavin today and said he was solid, maybe he'd be a Houston Texan someday, you know, who knows, maybe. I mean, and the, the people that are really into this, a lot of football fans, it, it's, it's interesting to me, they, they even, on, on television now, they, they even put on what they call the combines, which are kind of like tryouts, that where people do exercises and sprints and, and lift weights and those kind of things in front of the, the pro scouts. They put that on television. T flipped it on yesterday, and there's 300-pound linemen running a 40-yard sprint. That was actually kind of amusing. <laughs> they don't get to do that often. And there's all this focus and, and look like the teams like the Texans are thinking, what do we need next? What do we need to draft? And some of you guys are already going, I'm, I've got some advice for them. They need another wide receiver to balance out Andre Johnson. We need another deep threat. We need, we need, another, we need another cornerback. We need, you know. Well, there's going to be several rookies drafted in, in April, and they're going to hit camp this summer with the Texans. And when they, when they get there, the veteran players are going to surround them, and, and maybe a few of them will, will pull, pull them aside one by one and say, hey, listen, when you're out there today, we start practice, don't give it your all. I mean, just take it easy. Just try to say the right things and don't look stupid and, and run half speed. We don't want anyone to get, you know, take this too serious. It's not like we're expecting to get to the Super Bowl this year. They're going to say that? No. Some veteran is going to pull one of these hotshot rookies up close and say, listen, this is our year. This is my time. It's our window of opportunity. And you've got talent, but what we need from you is commitment. We need you to commit and give us everything you've got. This can be the year. 
our life group uh, this last year, one of the studies we went through was a book by uh, David Platt, a young uh, dynamic pastor in Alabama, um, a book called Radical. And in that book, he, he tells a story about in the late 1940s, the, uh, the U.S. government commissioned a guy named William Francis Gibbs to, to work with the United States uh, ship lines to, to construct an $80 million uh, troop carrier for the Navy. And the purpose was to design a ship that could, with great speed, carry 15,000 troops during times of war get them to the, the place they needed to be. And by uh, 1952, uh, construction on what was called the SS United States was done, completed. And the ship could travel at 44 knots, which is around 50 miles an hour or so. That's fast on the water, isn't it? Especially when you think about a ship that could carry 15,000 troops. So she could steam, you know, 10,000 miles without stopping for fuel or supplies. She could outrun any other big ship out on the, on the high seas. It was the fastest, most reliable troop carrier in the world. But the interesting thing is, the SS United States never carried any troops, at least not in any official capacity. Um, once it was put on standby to be ready in the early 60s for the Cuban Missile Crisis, but, but otherwise she was never used in any official troop-carrying capacity by the U.S. Navy. Instead, they decided to transform the SS United States into a luxury liner for presidents and heads of state and a lot of celebrities and other folks like that who traveled on that ship during her first uh, 17, 18 years of service. And as a luxury liner, she couldn't carry 15,000 people. The way they had it set up now was she could house just under 2,000 passengers. And while on board, those passengers uh, would have the luxuries of 695 staterooms, four dining uh, rooms, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck with a heated pool, 19 elevators, and the comfort of the world's first fully air-conditioned passenger ship. And instead of using the vessel for wartime, the SS United States became a luxury liner. I've never been a, a naval uh, seaman. Um, never been in the military at all. But I, I've been on a, a, a two cruise ships, one a lot better than the other. And, uh, but even the one that wasn't, wasn't so wonderful, the first time we went on a cruise, I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And I can just imagine that there's just a huge difference from being on a cruise ship to being on a military transport ship. I'm sure the conversations are a lot different. The sleeping accommodations are a lot different. The food has definitely got to be quite a bit different. Anybody been in the Navy? Is it just like being on a cruise ship? 
So when I read this story and you think about the history of the SS United States, David Platt tells that story to remind us as Christians, as a church, the Lord's called us to be disciples, followers of Jesus, not to be spectators, not to be just fans, like the new book says. Got to be more than that. We have to move beyond just saying, I believe this, to lining up our lives with what we confess. Jesus said, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. I'm going to paraphrase that. If you try to take it easy and have everything be about you, you'll lose. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you'll save it. Anyway, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Which is going to last longer anyway? Jesus was very clear on that day. He said, following me wholeheartedly. It costs a lot, but it's infinitely worth the price. Amen. So you've, you've made your confession. You've said, this is what I believe. And let me just affirm today and encourage you in that and say, that is uh, awesome wonderful thing it's a must you must confess your faith in Christ and your belief in him but now let me ask you have you have you and are you paying the price Jesus said it's infinitely worth it Infinitely. Inside your worship folder, you've got prayer cards. Many of you have filled those out already. And uh, in the next few moments, as we, as we meditate and pray and think, you may want to fill that prayer card out. And maybe today you want to fill it out in such a way that reflects not only your confession, but your desire to line up your life with the plans and purposes of God. Maybe you've got a great need today for help or healing or strength. And I can say to you, if you offer yourself completely to the Lord, He will be absolutely everything that you need Him to be. You bow your heads with me. Father, we thank You today for... Uh, your love and faithfulness. I thank you for your mercy, your goodness, your grace, your love. I thank you, Lord, that you do not try to trick us in any way. Jesus, you never, you never once said that it would be easy. 
You never once said it wouldn't cost us anything. You never once said we could confess you as Lord and then do our own thing. You never, never once in any way implied that it wouldn't cost us something. And so, Lord, I, I ask today that you would, you would speak to us about anything in our lives that we've held back, about anything in, in, our, in our life, in our relationships, in our habits, in our daily lifestyle that keeps us from taking up our cross and following you. I pray that you would reveal to us your, your goodness and your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit in such a way that we would see that whatever we would count as loss, whatever we would lay aside for the sake of knowing and following you is most definitely worth it. What you offer to us in return, what you give back to us, is complete, is good, is strong, that you never leave us or forsake us, that you are constantly always working for the good for those that love you and are called according to your purpose and have decided, yes, I want to line my life up in line with God's truth and his word and, and his plan for me. And Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to see things beyond the human point of view. That doesn't mean that human considerations aren't real and not valuable, but, but Lord, if, if you would just help us to get a, a glimpse today of the, the bigger story, the, the bigger plan, help us to begin to have opened eyes to who you are, what you're doing, what you want to do in our lives. And, with us and through us. I thank you today that uh, you're good, you're gracious, but I also thank you, Jesus, that there's no deceit in you, nothing to trick us. You laid it out real clear. And so today, Lord, I, I pray that we'd be willing to offer you ourselves completely give every part of ourselves to you. I thank you, Lord, for your, your presence with us today. I thank you for the confession of God's people today, of their belief and their trust and their hope in you. And now I pray that you'll help us in these moments and even as we leave here to walk following you and carrying our cross. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.